is Abby Titmer still trapped on Love Island? Is your best friend really a diamond? A few episodes ago, we had a listener who had accidentally managed to get a free bottle of wine out of a supermarket because he'd said to the supermarket he left it in store. Whereas actually it was in his car and they gave him a second bottle of wine. What should he do? Why are you reminding us of this, Helen? Is he now incarcerated? An anonymous lady from London has a similar problem, but amped up. Okay, so it's like the same, like the but same. different. The same, but different. It's a, the a variation, kind of feedback, isn't it? Yeah. A variation. I think there's extra jeopardy due yes, to higher and. price items. <laughs> it's not just wine. It's not wine and pretzels. It's more, more cash value than that. Okay. Anonymous lady says, I ordered a laptop online. It's a perfectly reasonable thing to do these days, isn't I, it? I think so. I wanted to change the delivery arrangement, so called them and was advised to cancel the order and buy it again. Mm-hmm. That seems ridiculous, but she says, I did exactly this. She did as she was told. She did. So far, she's blameless. The following week, I took a delivery of two laptops. Wow. That's all right. I checked my bank account and I have only paid for one. Ollie, answer me this. What would you do? The guy who steals orange juice from Prep? (laughs) Tell them and return the extra laptop or keep quiet. And if I don't tell them... How long should I wait before I sell it and pocket £700? The issue here for me is that their level of incompetence was not such to justify a £700 embezzlement. Do you think a £10 embezzlement? Yes, I think so. I think 50 quid. We're not auctioning off the okay, value right. of their incompetence. If they repeatedly send you the wrong thing, then I'd think, oh, well, for fuck's sake, you know, this is not my problem. Basically, life's too short, they're mm-hmm. rubbish, not going to get on the phone and sort it out. I'm just going to pocket the cash. That is, by the way, wrong and illegal, but nonetheless, I'm saying I understand the justification for that. In this instance, really, the only thing that they've done mm. that you have to complain about is not have a very good delivery changing policy. Yes. I think you have to call them again and say that you've got this laptop and how can you return it? And then if they accidentally send you another laptop, then I think you're justified <laughs> in selling both those spare laptops. That's the spoils of war at that point, isn't it? <laughs> Pretty much. Um, Yeah, I mean, look, ethically, you're absolutely right. But sometimes ethics are easy and then you're suddenly presented with a real-life dilemma and you think, actually, I can think of a reason to embezzle this. And for example, I once got paid for doing two radio shows that I didn't actually present. Mm. Um, The money was invoiced by my agent, so my agent had invoiced it incorrectly. And so I felt like I could distance myself from the error. Because everyone knows agents aren't supposed to have morals. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I basically justified to myself thinking, well, it wasn't my error. They're a large organisation and... They never gave me a fee rise. They probably owe it to you. They never paid my parking. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, there was that time I had to stay in a hotel and they never gave me my money back for that. All of which was true, <laughs> but also wrong. Like ethically wrong. I should have declared the money. Ethically wrong, but emotionally right? Well, the, the way I justified it to myself was when the company charity drive came round, mm. I gave a donation which was equivalent to my two-show salary. That's generous. Um, but, But... You know, I was getting quite well paid at that time, so I kind of probably would have given quite a large donation to charity anyway, otherwise I would have felt like a hypocrite on air telling people to give money to them. So actually, mm. I, in the end, I still probably gave the same amount to charity that I would have done, so I still embezzled it, really. Mm. But I felt better about it. You gave your employer's money to charity, which is very... I gave my employer's money to my employer's own charity. <laughs> That's weird. I'm pretty sure their charity only exists for tax purposes anyway, so... Is know. it one of those charities like my old private school is technically a charity? <laughs> the least deserving charity in the entire world? No, it definitely went to autistic children. I met them. Unless the okay. whole thing was a front. Yeah. <laughs> so do you think Anonymous Lady could sell off the second laptop and give the money to charity in a kind of Robin Hoodish way? No, I think in this instance, and we don't know how large the company, I mean, frankly, if it's Amazon, don't worry about it. But if it's any smallish (laughs) company. Some artisanal laptop maker. (laughs) If someone's this incompetent, they don't Mm. have a delivery policy that's any good and flexible. It could be a bloke in his shed in Worcester who's selling old laptops. And then you are kind of ripping off the small guy, really, aren't you? I was in exactly this dilemma in the 90s, but instead of with laptops, it was with subtitle generators. What? What's what's one of those? Yeah, good question. I I think I'm the only person to have ever bought one, and that's why they were so surprised they sent me two. (laughs) (laughs) And this is like your bar mitzvah present to yourself or something? Good guess. Uh, My bar mitzvah (laughs) present in 1994 from my parents was a Panasonic VHS camcorder. 
Good, cool. that's a good gift, that's particularly like then. It was a great camcorder. Was it huge? It was huge. It went on your shoulder, so it yeah. looked like something ITN would have. Yeah, because mm. now camcorders are smaller than a VHS tape. Yes, well, now camcorder is on your mobile phone, isn't yeah. it? But then I started making home movies on um, VHS and realised that although they looked pretty professional and the editing was difficult because mm-hmm. you had to pause and play and have the two machines running at once and stuff. Oh, wow, you did proper tape editing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Real Dawson's um, Creek stuff. <laughs> I could never get the titles right. Like, if you wanted to do an opening credit sequence, and, and for me it's always been about the um, credit rather than the art, <laughs> all you could do basically is, like, old-fashioned write something on wallpaper and spool it past the camera, essentially. Wow. Mm. I mean, you could do stop-motion versions of that, but that's what it was. Unless you got a credit generator which was a, a box you plugged your camera into and the other lead into the video player, press record and pause, and it would superimpose electronically generated BBC Basic style titles wow. over your video. That is actually amazing. It was amazing. For, for the so how, 90s. how did you input the text? What, like a little keypad, keyboard, or something? Yeah, keyboard. So it looked, like, cool. it looked like a big laptop. Like, you know, like a 90s laptop. So I'm going to take a guess at the monetary value that would have... Co- in When was it? 90s? 1994. I know the 1994 price. I can't adjust for inflation. I'm going to say that probably cost you oh, £160 Ooh. in 1994. I was going to go for £780. No, it wasn't as much as that. The camera was 1000 Uh No, the prices I recollect from the mail order catalogue was £295. So it was, it was for the serious hobbyists. And they sent me two of them. The problem I had was... AI was 14. Yeah. So I hadn't even bought it on my own credit card because I didn't have yeah. one. B, customer service was much more inaccessible in those days. Yeah, it was mail order. Oh. Um, Did you have to send something to a PO box to exactly. get a response from anyone? Yeah. Uh, in fact, I think I probably paid for it with a postal check. Is that what they were called? Postal order? Postal, postal, postal order, order, yeah. yeah. That's old school. It's yeah. like traveler's check, it's like isn't it? It's like Dane Gelt. <laughs> so, in the end, I thought, well, I'll... I'll keep both of them but because of course there was no eBay to sell them on and oh. it's not something you could take to the charity shop because they wouldn't know what it was. But if you kept them, now eBay, you could sell them yes. quite well for because f- people love old electrical equipment now. Yeah, that's a good point. So I did have two but um, of course I only ever used one and one just, you're right, I should have kept it in the box, put it in the attic and now it would probably be worth about the same. You didn't know. I didn't. I suppose you could have donated it to your school's media lab or something. What I thought was, I'll use this as a prop for when I'm filming an office scene. But of yes. course, you know, mm. that doesn't look like actual office equipment anyone has unless they work in a home video making company. If you were filming something like a space drama, it might look like something quite high tech, except yes. that's something you wouldn't seem like you would make. Uh, well, a similar dilemma, Helen, believe it or not. Wow. Uh, besets Charlie, who says, I'm a long time listener, aren't we all, mate? But a first time <laughs> question asker, oh. and I'm in desperate need of some advice. I've recently moved into an unfurnished apartment in New York City. Most of my furniture shopping was done via Amazon Prime. Sign of the times, isn't it? Mm. Um, But not knowing the predicament in which I would find myself, I foolishly ordered a futon on Wayfair. What? I I don't understand the uh, scrape into which he has entered by doing this foolish thing. No, this sounds quite a lot like another customer complaint email disguised as a question to the show, doesn't it? (laughs) Have we sunk so low? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Two weeks went by... And a package arrived. However, inside the box was not a futon at all. That's a lucky escape because sleeping on a futon is a wretched business. What is the point of a futon when sofa beds exist? Sofa beds tend also to be diabolically uncomfortable. I would rather... And they're bulkier and heavier, aren't they? But more elegant and specifically designed for the purpose. I would rather get a decent sofa and just sleep on that. Wow. Yeah. Mm. I've set out my stall. I'd rather get a decent bed and use that as a sofa. That's what I do, essentially. Why get out of bed at all? (laughs) The other furniture is largely pointless. Anyway, Charlie continues. What was inside the box? Was it Gwyneth Paltrow's head? (laughs) What's inside the box is the second half of Mulholland Drive. (laughs) (laughs) To my shock... Spoilers. (laughs) There were instead two red bar stools. Oh, interesting. That's nice. For which I have little use and little space. Uh, Obviously uh, not planning on staging Whose Line Is It Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) You've got all that space that's not being taken up by a futon. (laughs) I have since contacted Wayfair and they've assured me that the futon is on its way. But Helen, answer me this. Can you provide me with some creative, (laughs) space-efficient ideas with which I could utilise the bar stools? I'd hate to give them away 
as the accent colour in my living room is red. It's, it's so <laughs> felicitous that they sent you an appropriate wrong thing. Exactly. Uh, and aesthetically, they are a good fit for my apartment. Well, why are you complaining about not having enough space then, Charlie? Because you've clearly made space for them in your heart. And why are you complaining about Wayfair's customer service when they obviously have spoken to you and not asked for the chairs back that they sent you by mistake? I mean, they're mm-hmm. worth something. If anything, I'd say they're being Wayfair. Wow. Sorry. Well, I looked on Wayfair's website and I thought if they're kind of stackable stools, maybe you could use them as a sort of makeshift ladder or a plant holder or something to dry your laundry. But or a set for a fringe theatre production. Very smart. However, they do seem to be the kind which is like a tall swivel chair with a back. Oh. So that means it's hard to stack them. And those are basically my least favourite furniture items. Well, but if you look at what the crowd say, Helen, I mean, if they're the ones I think they are, they've had an average of four and a half stars across 131 reviews. Wow. Now, that isn't four and a half stars across 1,431 reviews like we have on iTunes, but it's not bad. <laughs> and I think you'll find that's a good quality bar stool. Um, so, you know, the crowd likes them, so try okay. them out, is my advice. Okay. Don't just write them off because they're not what you ordered. No. What, what about, what about if you're the sort of person that, um, uh, rather than having a TV, has a projector, that would be perfect. Pop a projector on top of one of those stools and you get a nice image at a decent mm, height. Yeah. Where do you stand? And I on don't mean literally stand. I mean, what is your position? And I don't mean what is literally your position. Legs I mean, akimbo, How, how do you feel... <laughs> About breakfast bars. Terrible. Me too. Bullshit. That's Why? another thing on which we can bother. Why do you dislike them so much? I think well, they're quite good. I don't like them because they're not as good as a table. They usually intrude unnecessarily into a room in a permanent way, unlike, yeah. say, mm. a butcher's block or a table. Thirdly, I'm short, so I do not like barstool-type seats where my feet are dangling. I feel like a child. A few months ago, Ollie, I met you for lunch at the Riding House Cafe in London. <laughs> there were only seats at the bar. You were already there. Mm. And I... I had to pretty much like climb up it like a mountaineer. It was so undignified. <laughs> and it was crammed as well, so there were people either side. Yeah, it was yeah. so undignified, and that's why I hate these fucking things. So Great back to Alaska, though. I can't remember. All I remember is the taste of humiliation. <laughs> so because I hate bar stools and they make me feel ungainly and undignified, the only suggestion I have for you, Charlie, for making use of them is to form a tiny boy band <laughs> with a friend, <laughs> uh, sit on them to do an acoustic ballad, and then at the key change, you both stand up off the bar stools. If you got a question, got a question email your question, question to answer me this podcast Here is a question from Jay, just slightly north of Cardiff. Uh, Helen answered me this. When in TV shows and films people speak in a fictional foreign language, like, for instance, Dothraki in Game of Thrones... Is that how you pronounce it? I've I have not, not seen, seen it. I've never watched it. It's got dragons. And... There's too much sexual violence in it to make it an appealing entertainment yeah. prospect to me. Or Elvish in Lord of the Rings or Klingon in Star Trek. Do the actors just say random words and sounds... Do they use a real foreign language and hope no one notices? People would notice! Or do they actually make up a whole new language from scratch? Yes. Yeah, the script writers are writers, they're professionals. Moreover, Tolkien was a linguist with a big background in Old and Middle English. So before he even wrote the Lord of the Rings stories, he had invented a whole language tree for Middle Earth. So all these different languages, how they related to each other by root word. Because that was interesting to him. A lot of linguists are very interested in constructed languages because you find out a lot about linguistics from doing that. When we got this question, I was very excited because I was like, oh, constructed languages. And then I realised I'm very uninterested in watching any of this stuff that actually contains a constructed language. I'm interested in the idea of it, but not actually the entertainment product. I suppose if you're someone like Tolkien then, who was a very cunning linguist... Oh, God. It (sighs) might be that, in a way, it's like a roadmap. Having that structure of the language before you've written the plot gives you a sense if you're really interested in how the language developed and what happened over time you can you're you're writing the history of your story before you've even started it must help yeah i think so and and if you're creating a world which i think all of the examples that jay has given they they are and the language adds to that Um, so i was very interested to read about um david j peterson who developed dothraki for the game of thrones adaptation he won a competition 
to do that for the pilot. He sent so in a 180-page submission, 180 pages. Like oh. most other people, it was just like a page or something. But what he did, he read the books and studied the ways that the words worked and created this whole system for for how the grammar must work and how the phonemes must work. And then when he had to develop a lot more Dothraki, he would then think, well, what's the etymology of this word? Obviously a fake etymology because mm. it's all a fake language, but that's how far he was going back. He was like, would it be related to this word? And if so, what's the common root in my mind? Mm. And so he's developed this complete grammar, although there are only about 4,000 words because you have to make up each of those words individually. So you don't have as big a vocabulary as in a real language that's how thorough these things go and i wonder whether tolkien is part of the reason of this like invented language is not a new thing at all but given how popular elvish became after that i wonder whether it then behooved them to think about it more than just saying to the actors i'll just spout some gibberish yeah. and actually that's a hard thing to do on the spot isn't it like say to someone oh well this camera's pointed at you and like this thing is costing two thousand dollars every second to shoot could you say something that you could repeat 20 times for all the retakes that sounds plausibly like real communication because we don't want that to take people out of this story in this world that we built? Sounds like the sort of thing Robin Williams could do, but most couldn't. So with Klingon, um, I think they did start with the actors kind of busking it. I was going to say because Leonard Nimoy and William Shatner, I don't know which, conspired between them to invent the V sign, you know, where they (laughs) hold their two fingers together and whatever that is. Uh, Live long and prosper. I heard a story with Leonard Nimoy saying that he got that from... Jewish mythology. Synagogue, yeah, yeah. yeah. The cloven hand. Um, (laughs) But but (laughs) William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy, both being Jewish boys, as a sort of joke to themselves, came up with that symbol to each other. So apparently that's where that came from. So so it made me think, well, if they were Mm. doing that, then probably they were inventing some of the language as well. Yeah. And, and that's because the budget was different. The early Star Trek episodes yeah. did not yeah. cost $200,000 yeah. a second, did they? They were made with like cardboard sets. As far as I know, the first time Klingon appeared was in the 1979 film Star Trek. But the, the real Klingon happened when the linguist Mark Ockrand, who specialises in Native American languages and happened to be doing some closed captioning on the 1982 Oscars where he met the director of the Wrath of Khan. He was brought in to supply four lines of Vulcan dialogue for the Wrath of Khan. And then for... Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock, he had been commissioned to create a whole Klingon language. So to do that, he had to kind of make a system that fit the stuff that had already been done, so it wasn't completely inconsistent. And also, I think there was some dialogue in English that they decided to dub afterwards into Klingon. So he had to invent stuff that fit with what Klingon there was already, but also with the movements the actors' mouths were making in English. But is Klingon actually used anywhere apart from in the Star Trek world? So what I mean is... When Star Trek superfans meet each other, can they converse in yeah. Klingon? Yeah. Can they really, though? Like, are there podcasts in Klingon like this where they're talking about things that aren't Star Trek? Look, there was someone who tried to raise his child with his first language being Klingon. That's child And abuse. he couldn't quite do it because Mark Ockren said, it's not a complete language. We invented what we needed for the screen. Yeah. But then other people have gone and invented stuff. And these things as well, like, they get a big life online. But the languages don't quite function like a real language, whatever your efforts, because... They're invented to answer an aesthetic requirement in this mm. in this entertainment rather than a true functional requirement. The words are chosen presumably because sometimes they're dramatic as well. Like a, a word yeah. for danger is more likely to be like, Achert! because someone's got to say it dramatically and, you know, a yeah. bomb's about to go off. So, so in Klingon, um, he said he wanted it to sound like an alien language because it's being spoken by aliens, but it had to be enough like a natural language that the actors could actually deal with it and memorise it. Mm. So it couldn't that be. That must be totally hard, bad. actually, mustn't it? Like, I want, they must just do it phonetically, mustn't they? I mean, you've already had to spend six hours in makeup. Well, that's yes. when you do it, isn't it? Yes. Six <laughs> hours in makeup. Do, do your uh, linguaphone tapes yeah, for Klingon. <laughs> Which way is the swimming pool? <laughs> I will destroy your planet. Today is a good day to die. I saw William Shatner in <gasps> a cafe last week. Oh, where? Wow. Barcelona. I was in Barcelona with my wife on holiday. Mm -hmm. Lovely. We went to get some tapas. Lovely. We were in a nice, but I would say unremarkable square. Mm -hmm. I don't want to insult anyone from Barcelona who's listening. It may have great history, this square. But what I mean is it wasn't one of the really famous ones. Yeah. We're sitting there in an anonymous tapas bar. Not that touristy. Right. Not on on the Ramblas. Nothing special. Yep. Tapas bar, quite nice. Sitting outside. I'm getting a visual, yep. My wife wants to go in to go to the toilet because the toilet's inside. You usual usual so standard far. stuff this no, is how it works not right outside in wouldn't the expect Shatner to be appearing anytime soon <laughs> she goes for a pee inside comes back outside and says Ollie Ollie there's, there's a boxer in there there's a famous boxer in there 
I was like, really? She was like, yeah, yeah, he's surrounded by security and they've all got earpieces. And just that was weird because we were in this very anonymous place, 3 p.m. in the mm-hmm. afternoon. And I was like, okay, I'll go and check it out. I went for a pee. Did you need one or were you just going to No, spine? I just went to see the box. Did you have one for Verite though? Uh, yes, okay. of course. <laughs> and I saw who she meant. It was George Foreman. Oh. Oh. But sitting next to him was William Shatner. What? Were they together? For Shut the front front together. Door. They were together. And then as I went out to say to my wife, yeah, yeah, the famous boxer is George Foreman, but William Shatner's there as well. She said, isn't that Henry Winkler? Henry Winkler was there as well. What? Oh, what? 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 All three of them were sitting there having lunch together. What? And anyway, it turns out Americans will be shouting at their smartphones or whatever they listen to at the moment um, because they'll know what the answer to this is, but we don't know because it's not broadcast here. Uh-huh. There is an NBC reality show, Better Late Than Never, I think, and it's an American version of a Korean TV show, which basically the joke is they're old, but we get them to do things that humiliate them. That's the joke. Um, so it's like oh. Top Gear for people in their 70s. That sounds awful. Um, and, and Shatner, Foreman and Winkler go travelling the world doing things. And they were filming in the square in Barcelona where we were that lunchtime dressed wow. in massive papier-mâché heads. Oh. Papier-mâché heads of like f- their own heads? No, no, of um, whatever. Like side-bottom like, Traditional heads. Spanish figures. Oh, okay. Because that's the thing, they go to each country and do a supposedly traditional thing. Mm-hmm. And although it was slightly um, kind of artificial for telly, as in... They filmed the sequence twice and it only lasted 10 minutes and it was shot from multiple angles and they'll probably make it look like it was all shot on one camera. And, you know, all that stuff was artificial in a sense. Like it had obviously been rehearsed. So it was reality TV, but, you know, it had mm-hmm. obviously been staged, big production. George Foreman, at the age of 80 or whatever he was, genuinely in the blazing sunshine was under a papier-mâché head with the crowd not knowing that was George Foreman So they could, they could have had a body double? Yeah, they had the actually real did do it. I, I presume so that they can talk about it afterwards or whatever. So did you take the opportunity to sort of get an autograph? Oh, Martin, I'm They're dignified. Yes, exactly. And Polly had to have a piss. You wouldn't just get an autograph or a photograph or something with William, with William fucking Shatner. Or, you're, or Henry uh, he's or George t- Foreman. You're too good for that. Yeah. To go and bother a celebrity while they're eating their olives. Basically, yes. Would you even Jesus. say, love the grills, George? <laughs> <laughs> I do love the grills. I love William Shatner's music as well, but that's, mm. you know, probably. I don't know if he'd like me saying that or whether he'd find that a bit. I think if you said I loved your cover of Common People, yeah. he probably doesn't get that every day in he the States. Get that every, exactly, yeah. That's me trying as a banger. That's me trying is my favourite William Shatner song. It's really good. We've never discussed that before. You put it on a mixtape. Oh, and yeah, that's, and then, and I you love it. it. Right, okay, it's a wow. beautiful song. I didn't think I inspired you musically in any way at all. So that was an exciting slub spot. It's, we... it's exciting when three random but very famous people are in the same place as you and you weren't expecting it and then suddenly you realise you're in the middle of a set for a primetime American reality show. So then did you linger over your meal just so you could uh, like rubberneck what they were doing? We watched this weird performance in the square that they did, yeah. <laughs> but there were, it was a huge production. I mean, I was watching it thinking, I mean, a British reality show in which, I mean, what would the equivalent be? Frank Bruno and... Who, Nigella Lawson. Nigella Lawson and John Pertwee yeah. go on a... <laughs> on an agricultural road trip you know that would have a crew of like six people wouldn't it that would be great you know maybe nigella would have her own personal makeup person but basically there'd be six people there this honestly there were like 40 people they had headsets they had t-shirts with the name of the show on they had baseball caps with the name of the show on wow it was you could really see the budget and i guess it must you know if it's primetime nbc i guess it has millions of viewers and that's why they have the budget but it was just it was weird to see it was quite exciting to see that's a good holiday spot yeah yeah we're really weird thing to happen in barcelona This brings us to today's intermission. Time to take a break from the present with a little trip to the past. This is the annual sad calls montage that Helen expertly weaves together for our best of episodes. That is my favourite thing to cut together all year. And I know it's kind of mean because we ask you to call in and you do so in good faith or (laughs) in drunken irresponsibility. And then at the end of the year, you hear yourself being used in this mildly mean way but who could object to hearing themselves recontextualized in this surprisingly beautiful way so if you want to hear the full version of these drunken call montages they're in the best ofs and uh, most of those are available at answermethisstore.com they are and they're not unlike our other archived content they're not available on itunes they're not available on amazon just the store the only place you can buy our best of episodes is from answermethisstore.com they're available at the bargainous price frankly of 1.99 each if you buy all of them it's 16 pounds you get hours of entertainment of our very best bits and you support the show it's a good taster as well of what we were up to that year if you're thinking uh 
I'm somewhat curious about what Answer Me This was like in 2008, but am I curious enough to buy 40 of their classic episodes? This is the way in. This is the way in. So let's hear a bit of the Sad Calls montage from 2012. Oh, hi, Helen Ollie. Oh, hi. Um, this is this is Dan and Joe from Brick House, West Yorkshire. Uh, we're quite drunk and on a school night as well. Huh. Hello, Helen and Ollie. Um, answer me this. Um, oh, I messed up. Hold on. Hold on. I'll start again. <laughs> hello, Helen. Oh, I can't say hello, hello, hello. Um, maybe I'm a bit drunk. Hold on. I'll, I'll do it again. Hello, Helen and Ollie. Answer me this. And you do need to answer me this. Oh, fuck it. Hold on, I'm going to have to do it again. No, this is Pete from Bucks. Uh, Helen and Ollie, please answer me this. What happens if you get injected with semen and you have semen in your bloodstream, is it? I don't suppose there's any possibility you could become pregnant by it. Um, asking the question, it feels kind of stupid now. Yes. <laughs> At the time, it seems... Uh, five seconds ago, it seems like very important to us. Good night, Cole. I love you. Bye. Um, where's the other one now? Uh, <laughs> there we go. Here's a question from Matt from Buckinghamshire, who says, Recently, I was on holiday in Australia. And whilst on a Sydney beach, I spotted someone I knew from back home in the UK. Oh, it's a reversal of what happens when you go to Earl's Court and all the Aussies are there, isn't it? (laughs) Well, it's good to keep things balanced, isn't it, with the exchange. We'd previously worked together in a pub. The problem was, she was sunbathing topless, and I wasn't sure if she'd appreciate me popping up out of the blue while she was half naked. (laughs) You could have chosen a more delicate phrase than popping up out of the blue, Matt. (laughs) Well, I know what you mean, yes. The blue is what I nicknamed my underpants. (laughs) Holly answered me this. What is the proper etiquette for approaching a familiar, yet not too familiar, topless lady? Mm. Do you ignore the boobs? Make a comment about them straight away. Do not approach at all. Luckily, on this occasion, I spotted her friend in the sea, top on, which solved the dynamic. Oh, that's a good get out of jail, isn't it? How does he mean? Well, because if, they're, if you see the friend first, you say, uh, hey, aren't you so-and-so who I used to work with in the yeah. pub's friend with your top on, dress normally? And then they say, yeah, so-and-so's here as well. Then that's you not go, so oh, weird. Oh, hi, rather than, yeah. oh, hello, I was just checking out your boobs exactly. and then I realised that your head was above them. Do you know, I <laughs> wish that we all lived in the, you know, frankly, Mediterranean society that uh, we'd like to in this instance. What, and so you got to see more tits? Plus, there was just, it just wasn't a big deal. However, the truth is... When you're on a beach and there are topless people there, you can't help but notice it as an Englishman. How would you feel if it was the reversed and you were topless? Like, I know it's not the same. It's not the same. Because you don't have tits, but, but I, I feel... I do have tits, but it's not the same. It's not a secondary sexual characteristic that yeah. has been uh, really glamorised and fetishised. But if I was in no, Speedos, I, I which I think is the same. Games. So, like, cock yeah, out okay. isn't the same, because no. that's another that's, thing above. That's level up. Yeah, but Speedos, so, like, tight so you can see what religion I am, those kind <laughs> of trunks... Yeah, I'd be aware of it, and I'd probably cover up with a towel. Yes. But because she wasn't covered up in a towel or sarong or kaftan or whatever, it suggests that she's comfortable with people seeing her in her swimsuit. No, she's comfortable with people she doesn't know in Australia seeing her. Well, there's no social embarrassment of seeing that person in the supermarket a week later, is there? If you meet them first topless, that's great. Sure. I mean, that's the premise of that dating show you were on about, isn't it? Which one? The one where they go dating naked first. Right, I haven't watched that. Oh, I thought you mentioned that. You're talking about Naked and Afraid? Yes. No, that's different. They're not dating. They're surviving. (laughs) Whatever. They're all shows where people are naked. On all of those shows. You're such a prude. Point being, if you first see someone's bits, that's easier actually Mm -hmm. in a way than knowing someone well as an acquaintance and then seeing their bits. Not sexually. Could you even this up and not feel so awkward about it if you approach this topless acquaintance with one of your testicles out? Is that equivalent if you were clearly doing that deliberately, I don't think that's equivalent, no. <laughs> I think there are these grounds to call the police. <laughs> um, I think had you not seen the friend of the water with her top on, the way out of this would be to go a long way away, mm-hmm. like 100 metres away, and then and shout, shit. Steph! 
is that you? That's a good point. And then like she's <laughs> not gonna funny. she's she's gonna think well I'm topless on the beach, yeah. but he's not seen the detail of my yeah. boobs here. Sunglasses are the solution because then you can say hello to her and she can't see whether you're looking at her chest or her eyes, which is part of the awkwardness, isn't it? Where you're worried that like you'll be speaking to her face, trying to fixate on her face, but your eyes will keep flicking down to her tits. No, I think it's awkward almost right. anyway. All right, well I've got the solution for you, Matt. Only go on holiday to Iceland. <laughs> <laughs> where the sun doesn't shine and in summer it's like 13 degrees so the chances of seeing a colleague or anybody that you know with a top off is fairly small here's another question about things that happen on holiday it's from laura in auckland who says helen answer me this what is up with the turn down service that you get in hotels right <laughs> like i can't get my own bedclothes unfurled a tiny bit helen's collaborating Uh, It seems like an enormous waste of energy with absolutely no point. Surely it would make more sense to just make the bed in a way in which it can be easily jumped into in the first place. I mean, Mm. how difficult is a bed to get into even if they have pulled the covers drum tight? It's still a bed. See, I I do think that there are lots of things that happen in hotels and in restaurants and anywhere where Mm -hmm. you're being served where you think this is a lovely treat because this doesn't happen at home. What, you don't put a load of ornamental pillows on your bed at home in order to take them off at night, peel down your covers at a diagonal and put a pair of slippers that you don't know who's worn them before (laughs) next to the bed and put some low jazz on the sound system and then leave the room. Correct. You don't. But in the case of the turndown, I agree with you that it's not something that I do think I would like that to happen at home. Well, you know, I would Mm. like to happen at home that a maid comes in every morning and makes my bed. (laughs) <laughs> and sterilizes my bathroom. And that's why you got married. And cooks me a buffet breakfast. <laughs> I would like that. But I wouldn't like this. This mm-hmm. is just like, I'm getting dressed now. I don't really need you in here. I don't need an ornamental swan or a chocolate. The only reason why I get hotel housekeeping at all is if I need the tea bags replenished so that I can carry on stealing them. Well, that would be one of my arguments for the night turndown is that I get the conditioner. If they've got the little bottles the conditioner. of conditioner. I don't use hotel. I use it as leave-in conditioner, man fans. Really? Just take, oh. yeah, take it off the trolley. Keep those curls textured. I found it's the best thing. I used to get special leave-in conditioner or wax. No uh, need. Look, what you're looking at now, see this kind of flexibility, but it's hotel, in place. Hotel conditioner. Molten brown. Indian Oof. cress Oof. from a hotel. Indian cress? Yeah. Didn't even know that's a plant. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably made up. It's, it's probably just called cress in India. <laughs> it's probably just blended cress. <laughs> that's why your hair's green <laughs> and it's growing on a tea towel. Anyway, Laura continues... If I was a hotel owner, this would be the first thing I would get rid of to cut costs. Second thing, the beds. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure there is some historical reason for it. But seriously, why hasn't it been dropped already? Right. History of turndown service. Is there one? Well, history of turndown service is basically the history of having servants. Yes. Who would do all of that stuff for you. Servants would have come, laid a fire in the evening, lit, lit the gas lamps or oil lamps or whatever... Which I think is why I don't like it. It's that air of servility that it has that makes me feel uncomfortable in lots of contexts. Yes. Um, so with hotels, like if I'm there for a few days, I leave the do not disturb sign on all the time unless absolutely necessary. I want it to be extravagant. Yeah, but not at But not inessential. Cost. Yeah. But I think the feeling of luxury and extravagance is why it happens. The whole thing about luxury hotels, because this doesn't happen at Travelodge, no, right? This right. happens at places that... It doesn't even happen at a four-star nice. hotel, does it? No, it's at luxury exactly. hotels, yeah. Yeah, it's not often that I have to avoid this happening. Yeah. <laughs> Usually it doesn't happen. So that whole thing about hotels is the idea that no one has ever slept there before. It's pristine, including you. Mm. And so the turndown service, even if you've rumpled the bed in the day because you had a nap, it's making it seem like your, your first time. Come to think of it, when it's done really well, and mm-hmm. again, I have had little occasion to see it done really well. <laughs> I can think of once. Four Seasons, Las Ooh. Vegas, Ooh, very okay. good hotel. Were, were there towel animals? I've never stayed somewhere with towel animals. I have had towel animals, but not there, no. This is the thing they did, which I th- this is what I thought was nice. It wasn't like personalised to me, because it must apply to like one in five rooms that they service, but it's something I've never right. seen before. I have a spectacles case mm-hmm. with my glasses in it, just like on the side of my bed. In nice hotels before, they've rearranged that so that it's perpendicular. Yep. But what they did at the Four Seasons Las Vegas is they took my glasses, polished them, oh. and then put a little um, glasses cleaning cloth with Four Seasons Las Vegas oh, written on it nice. in the box. Nice. Wow. And shut the box. Was so it? That it was there as a treat when I opened it. Did they wow. fold the glasses cloth into a little elephant or swan? <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that, that. Was, that was classy. Now... 
is a lot of this turndown service to make you feel very well disposed towards that hotel so you come back you review it nicely you put photos up on TripAdvisor mm. is it all because of that? Partly I mean I think part of the reason it might still exist now is because of that and replenishing your towels and, and anything you've messed up since they made your bed seven hours before now I also wonder whether it's an element of turning your room from day to night so in the day you might have all this crap on the bed like the ornamental pillows and that weird little strip of fabric like a bed loincloth yeah, what that, is that? it's a fake blanket but that means you might have people in your room for business or, or visiting you and you might not want to have your bed as Laura suggests ready to leap into at any time because that signals the room too much as being bed rather than business or visitors <laughs> bed rather than business unless, you're, unless the bed is your business <laughs> my bed is all business I'm trying to build a website to bring tourists to Radlit But when I open it up on my smartphone or tablet Something goes wrong and it just looks a bit shit Unlike Hertfordshire itself While try building that website using Squarespace On desktop and devices it will look simply ace As well designed as Hertfordshire with all that lovely green space County of Opportunity and Stevenage Thank you very much to Squarespace for sponsoring this episode and for making websites so much more pleasant than in the olden days. Oh, I can tell a Squarespace design website, Helen, from any ordinary website. It's the slideshows. It's the adaptability yeah. across mobile platforms. It's the powered by Squarespace at the very bottom. It's just the, it's the, little, <laughs> it's just the little boner that I get when I look at the site. And I think that's... Like a semi-chub. They've, they've nailed it, haven't they? They've absolutely nailed they've it. Really nailed as it, I rarely do when I get a boner. <laughs> if you want to design well, Squarespace is bringing out all of the personal details you can divulge all of your personal details onto a Squarespace site you can site. have a personal journal you can have a personal portfolio you can have a personal journey if you're, if you are a person if you're a person yeah. why don't you try in Squarespace because it's so easy to build a website there and you drag and drop things and uh, splat some pictures on and wham you've got a very sophisticated <laughs> looking website it's more sophisticated than the words I use to evoke yes. that website oh, you can actually you can embed things as well so oh, even, even if you're not happy with the incredible award winning designs that the clever people at Squarespace have designed for you and then they've got award winning customer service if uh, you can't yeah. deal with it yourself but even if you're like yeah, pff, not bothered about that eh. doesn't matter because yeah. you can embed code from other places like for example if if you host a podcast on Acast or if you want to embed a SoundCloud file, yep. you can do all of that and other stuff too, like whatever code you want, basically. You know, when you look at a marquetry table and you think, well, they've really embedded a lot of different uh, woods in that. Yeah. Squarespace is uh, like the 21st century version of an 18th century marquetry table. That's, I mean, that's pretty much then you can You campaign. get that a lot in that's, like that's, all the that's, podcast that's the, ads for Squarespace. Yeah. always talking about marquetry, think, Tunbridge yeah. Ware, you know, all the wooden arts. I think we've nailed their Super Bowl <laughs> commercial for the year. Um, anyway, if You're you, welcome, lad. <laughs> if you want to get a free trial for two weeks and dick around with it and... Uh, and then get 10% off for a whole year. Head to squarespace.com and use our code ANSWER. And we had someone write in saying, which of the many podcasts I listen to do I use the code of for Squarespace? R1. R1. Obviously, because by doing that... Who uh, do you love the most? You're signalling to Squarespace they should continue to support the show with, with money because guess what? They do pay us for saying this. Yeah, and that means we can carry on making the show. That's right. Whee! Another great reason why Squarespace are ace. Square sp- ace. <laughs> it's a portmanteau, you didn't know. Uh, here's a question from Brian from Windsor who says, Ollie, answer me this. How do I become a returning officer for an election? A timely question. Yes, it's funny, we just had one. We've just had an election. And it was a great night of television. The be- <laughs> Honestly, the best night of television that I have watched in a long time. It was gripping. It was oh, even it was better than time. the Naked and Afraid marathons that I enjoy in <laughs> hotel rooms on um. my own. <laughs> and can you just clarify who the returning officer is? Because there are a lot of people around on the TV coverage of election night. It's the gentleman or lady who looks like a mayor, usually. What do they look like a mayor? Like, because they're wearing like the gold coins around the neck or something. I like they look Mr. official. T. Like Mr. T. And they're the person who announce uh, Helen Zaltzman. Independent. Monster Raving Looney Party. Four votes. 492. Only yeah. man. Genius party. 5,962. <laughs> Martin Austrick. Tom Waits party. <laughs> 20 million. <laughs> well, that's, that's good news. I'm an MP now. Anyway, that's the returning officer. It's okay. So if they're dressed like the mayor, does that mean they are the mayor or is there a special returning officer mayoral style uniform? Good question. Thank you. It usually means they are the mayor. Oh, yes. Okay. Um, and that suggests how you become the returning officer. Basically, it's an honorary mm-hmm. post. 
it's usually given to someone like the mayor. Sometimes it's the chairman of the council. Sometimes right. it's a county high sheriff, which Ooh. is a thing in England. I didn't even know we had that in How England and Wales. How do you get Wales. to be that? Because Brian needs to know how I can become the Windsor high sheriff. But the UK high sheriffs are appointed by the royal family and it goes back to before the Norman conquest. So it's probably too late for you, Brian. I imagine the Windsor district is competitive. <laughs> yeah. but, but Brian lives in Windsor, so he could just turn up at yeah. Windsor Castle with a, a gift basket. Possibly. But in London, where... Stratum, I don't think, has a mayor. Mm-hmm. Who does it in all of the all of the districts of London that are returning an MP? It'll be a senior person from right, the okay. council. Okay, so it's councils and stuff. It's right. councils. And actually, although the returning officer is is the person reading out the results and they get to be on telly, mm-hmm. they don't do any of the administering. It's just the honorific of being on the telly. Right. Actually, they're just the figurehead, which is why it's usually a mayor or someone who doesn't actually, you know, necessarily know anything about what's going on. So they've not counted every vote themselves? They haven't counted it. What they do, the, the most important thing they do... Is not fuck up the numbers, <laughs> not put a decimal point in. <laughs> they appoint the ARO, which is the acting returning officer. What? I know, it's weird. The acting returning officer is actually the person who does the donkey work, like the staffing and the counting and supplying the ballot boxes. Mm-hmm. And that is a paid position. That's a lot of responsibility because if you fuck that up, there are repercussions. For yeah, well, that there's up. personal repercussions. So yeah, you can, you can be personally be fined up to £5,000 if something goes wrong with the election and you've been the acting returning oh, officer. Um, so like if there's a rat in the ballot box that eats all the ballots. <laughs> there's a rat in my ballot, what am I going to do? <laughs> it must be a nightmare though if you're the acting returning officer for those constituencies that were called with like 20 votes. Yes, yeah, so yeah. controversial. It's very stressful, yeah. It was a and, long and, night. You're and, not going to get better at counting at five in the morning when you've been up all night. And you're not that well remunerated for it either. It's between between two and five thousand pounds. Yeah, well, I mean that's not bad. Is that a day's work? Yeah. No, it can be eight weeks' work getting everything ready. Okay. Yeah, that's, yeah, okay. But nonetheless, that's still controversial because all of these people are already relatively highly paid people because they're senior yeah. in the council, so they're already on a public salary. Okay, so and then this they're getting more money over time. Yeah, for what you would think might be the most important thing they do in their job. So in Scotland, they're now thinking about making it so that you can't get paid for running the election as an acting returning officer. Well, then you might get Theresa May calling an election after only two years. So you might think, well, once every five years, I can do this overtime for free. But if she's going to have one all the time. Hello, it's Freya from France. I have a bike. um, And as I live in a flat, I have to leave it locked up outside um, in a public place. And the thing is, Almost every day I come and find that someone has used my bike as a rubbish bin and has left their beer bottles or cigarette packets in it. And it's really annoying. So Helen and Ollie, answer me this. How do I get people to stop using my bike basket as a bin? Put a cover on it, like a waterproof cover that you might have anyway, or some kind of mesh. Either that or passive aggressive note, I think would be very appropriate in this circumstance. Cling film? Clean no, film. No, well, that's like littering your own bicycle basket, isn't it? If you had a cover anyway for transporting, say, the bread you've bought without it getting rained on, then you could just leave it on there. But the people who are throwing it. rubbish in it don't have any respect for you anyway. Like mm. you're spending more money on the bike to protect it, they might think, ha ha ha, I'm going to put more stuff in it. Yeah, Whereas, they're doing it out of spite, aren't they? Exactly. Rather than because it's super practical to put it there rather than just leave it on the ground. Exactly. Whereas Martin's suggestion speaks of someone who's not quite balanced. Okay. A basket that's got cling film on it, you'd be like, what's that? <laughs> like, that belongs to a weird person. I don't want to get involved with that. But I don't... So actually, I don't think that's a bad suggestion. All right. Kitchen foil, equally. I don't think it's just spite. I think it's just immensely satisfying to dunk a thing into a thing. And there's something quite funny about pretending a bike basket is a waste paper basket. Mm. I'm surprised that in France, where cycling is like the national hobby it's de rigueur um indeed it's la mode de vie (laughs) (laughs) i'm surprised that anyone would vandalize a bike in any way all right the other thing you could do maybe which would be trying to make a positive out of this negative situation but would be removing the function of your bicycle basket for yourself sometimes people effectively have a window box as a bicycle basket they have charming little plants in there plastic or real i don't know she could do that because when something's pretty people are less likely to vandalise it. The other thing you could do, I suppose, is uh, divide it up into recycling compartments because that seems to fox a lot of people. <laughs> Particularly old people. If there's an old person putting his rubbish in your bin, he's not going to know which so department that is. Yeah. bottle recyclable or is it just paper? It's bottle they... of Oasis. Got a bit of everything going on. Where does food waste go? <laughs> ah. Yo, yo, one love. The best thing about tennis is the... A women's tennis. A women's tennis. Hearing those ladies all going... It makes me go in my pants. And 
Answer Me This Sports Day, out now at answermethispodcast.com slash albums. Here's a question from T.E. Hodden. I love the old-fashioned first initial, second initial surname thing. Mm. Are you a poet, T.E.? Are you a literary critic or something like that? Yeah. I'm thinking F.R. Levis-style naming. Yeah. T.S. Eliot. Are there any famous T.E.'s? Yes. Um, T.E. Lawrence. Yeah, T.E. Lawrence. Yes, Lawrence of course, Arabia. Lawrence Arabia. Yeah. Yeah. T.E. Hodden yeah. says, Ollie, answer me this. Why, oh, why, oh, why did know. Points of View use a version <laughs> of the song When I'm 64 as their theme for decades? Mm. Until you asked it, I thought I'd never realised. And then I looked at the lyrics and I was like, oh yeah, I realised this when I was eight and I last noticed this. That's probably the last time you watched Points of View. It's the last time anyone watched Points of View. It's, 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 still, it's still on though, is it? It bizarrely is still on. Jeremy it's Vine hosts it now, apparently. And it's now 15 minutes long and... Because it used to be five, didn't it? And it's now... <laughs> it's as much as anyone could stand. Well, I think the reason Points of View was created... Well, there were three reasons, really. Okay, explain to people okay. who do not watch this shit. It's people writing in to complain about okay. things and Let go, take why, you back oh, in why, time. oh, why? Okay. Thank you. There are two TV channels. <laughs> one of them is okay, the other one is good, but fewer people watch it. BBC One and BBC Two. Correct. Mm-hmm. The BBC is run by people who went to Oxbridge and don't care what you think. That hasn't really changed very much. <laughs> well, now some of them have been to Warwick or Edinburgh. <laughs> but there's a growing movement of busybodies who are like... I want to complain that there are too many radical politicians on the telly or... Or the plants are ugly on Gardner's world. <laughs> the BBC thinks, ah, we'll create a show where we answer these wankers' problems. <laughs> but we'll make it only five minutes long. Why don't we call it Shut the Fuck Up? <laughs> <laughs> Thereby looking like we care what the public think about us. Without actually having to deal with their bullshit. But also filling five minutes of our schedule when we have five minutes to fill. Because mm. the thing about the BBC is they don't take advertising. Mm. And so when they ran, for example, an American import that was 23 minutes long, oh. what do they do with that seven minutes up to the news? They just, mm. they just slow it down. They it meets it. more of a British standard as well if you slow down an American drama. <laughs> they fill it with correspondence from cunts. Wow. That's so, what they do. So That's when, a better name for the show. Cundespondence. <laughs> Correspond cunts. Uh, so when did this start? Um, 1960s. Oh, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, it's been going a long time. Who hosted it originally? Uh, I think his name is like Robin Robinson or something hilarious <laughs> like that. But he did it for a long time. So this is very much before Web 2.0, where everyone was uh, feeding back on their entertainment. Yeah, it was quite revolutionary, the sense that the audience could interact with the show and talk about other shows. It was a bit meta. And, and then 40 years later, we came along. Well, in fact, actually, it, it, in a sense, it was ahead of its time, because obviously, because the nature of the show, they were one of the first shows to take calls, albeit mm. they'd be voicemails, because um, mm. it was pre-recorded. Um, but they were also, in 1994, the first BBC TV show to invite contributions by email. Mm. What? Uh, and at one point... That was early. The produ- yeah, the producer of Points of View was the only person in Television Centre to have an internet connection. Ha. So what T.E. Hodden is doing in his poetic question, which befits his name, by saying, why, oh, why, oh, why, is that became the classic cliche of how people... Would, why, oh, D- why, oh, why? Dear BBC, yeah. why, oh, why, oh, why? Does Alan Titchmarsh not host everything? Um. <laughs> why, why, why does Charlie Dimmock not wear a bra? It's disgusting to see a woman's sweater puppies. <laughs> anyway, the reason that they used the theme when I'm 64 was because... That was the average age of the correspondence. <laughs> well, I wonder if there was a slight mm. dig at that, yes. When I'm 64, I'll be in my cantankerous years, but still able to write. There's a lyric from the song, doesn't it? Yes, so the answer is yes. It's the lyric, send me a postcard, drop me a line, oh. stating point of view. Oh, so, okay, so it's a very literal yes. reason. But I'm surprised they could get the rights because I thought it was really difficult to get the rights to Beatles songs. Well, it is. Like, Mad Men wiped out their whole budget just using um, one Beatles song in oh. the end credits to one episode. That yeah. was, like, the whole series budget. I can only speculate that Paul McCartney was a fan of Anne Robinson or something. So he wrote in and they were like, Paul will answer <laughs> this complaint if... <laughs> yeah. It was Anne Robinson, wasn't it, that presented it? Anne Robinson, yes. Then uh, Carol Vorderman for a year, then Des oh. Lynham for a year, then oh. Terry Wogan for 10 years, then Jeremy Vine. Cozy Carol, Cozy Des, Cozy Terry. Yeah. Sharp-edged Vine. Yeah, I think the reason they've gone for Vine now, although he's still got the Radio 2 familiarity and he can do cuddly yeah. when he needs to. He's warm but acerbic when he needs to be. Mm-hmm. I think the reason they chose him is because it's become a bit more like... Let's interview the editor of Panorama to find out why there aren't more deaf people on TV. It's like that. <laughs> mm. So it, they take a letter, but then it's the starting point for a five-minute bit of journalism where he interviews someone who works oh. on telly. So it's more like Radio 4's feedback programme and less like it used to be, which was Anne Robinson in front of a desk for five minutes. And that's because <laughs> I think the five-minute issue isn't such an issue anymore because mm. of iPlayer and stuff. 
So it they could can go run, for hours. Could, they can put an extra long version out. They can separate the interviews and say that they're doing their duty to listen to the public and whatever. Yeah. Um, and I suppose the other reason that the BBC like it is the BBC finds it quite hard to promote itself. Mm-hmm. I know you might be thinking, no, they don't because they put ads between every show for their shows. Yes, but those are like targeted campaigns, aren't they? Like they, they, There are things that they do every week that they can't really boast about because they're the BBC and it's public service broadcasting. Right. But by saying on points of view, I'd like to say that your episode of Songs of Praise, in which you reflected the songs of the Mali community, was excellent. They're basically saying, look at this cool thing we've done. Okay. Mm. So they're Even just if there's someone you, complaining. So they're reminding you that Songs of Praise exists. They're exactly. reminding you that Panorama exists. They're reminding you that Jeremy Vine exists if you don't listen to Radio 2. Huh. Clever shit right there. Uh, and if you want to contribute to more clever shit next time, then we are... <laughs> always up for your points of view if you'd like to send in a question for the next episode of the show all our contact details are on our website answermethispodcast.com and on there as well you can click through to follow us on twitter and facebook yes and you'll also find links to the answer me this store whereupon you can buy our first 200 episodes our best ofs as aforementioned in this episode our albums and our apps uh, you can also donate to the show, by the way. All you need to do is go to paypal.me slash answer me this and oh. you can just send us cash if you want. Some people want to do must. that. We appreciate that. You can also listen to our other work. Yes. Such as... My podcast, The Modern Man. Who's been on The Modern Man lately? I've interviewed a guy called Pete Lawrence, who was the co-founder of the Big Chill Festival. Wow. Ah. Quite interesting because he started it in his sitting room in Finsbury Park or whatever. And he was like, let's just recreate my sitting room on a grand scale. Essentially. And then it all got massively out of hand and it became corporate backed and he um. had to deal with alcohol companies. And he's kind of concerned about how he managed to keep the ethics of a festival going in so that now, circumstance. Now it's the big stress. Don't want to spoil the ending. Oh. Um, but interview with him. Um, and also uh, on the episode that we've just put up actually Martin I think you'd find this really fascinating oh yeah um, it's about the use of neuroscience in the dock in a courtroom oh so okay. it's an interview with a lady called Dr Lisa Clayden who's an academic and she specialises in sort of brain crime for want of a better phrase not thought crime so it's basically if we could scan everyone's brains and prove that they'd go on to be a murderer even if they haven't done it yet should they go to prison this is some dangerous shit isn't it's, it yeah it's a good mm. interview it's really interesting minority report for real the subliminal criminal that episode's called that's a now. great Ooh, title thank you thanks very much the website is modernmanmann.co.uk on the subject of brains I did an illusionist recently called Eclipse and it's about a woman who when she was 27 she was in Edinburgh she was doing karaoke of Total Eclipse of the Heart Woke up in hospital several days later because she'd had a stroke oh, on stage. Right. But uh, she's very cheerful. It's not a like, mm, sad, sad. Uh, mm. She was like, it was great. Uh, Martin did a really beautiful soundtrack based on Total Eclipse of the Heart, which you can ju- you can just download the soundtrack without the words. If you don't want the filthy words, you just want the instrumentals. Theillusionist.org is where you can find all of that. And Martin, you have a podcast as well, an award-winning podcast, no less. Song by Song podcast, uh, where we talk about every Tom White song in chronological order. Where are you up to now? Uh, we're about half- halfway through Sawfish Trombones. We've got the wonderful Joanna Neary as our guest. Aww. Answer me this, jingle star Joanna Neary. Is she doing it all in the character of Björk? I really hope she would, but she she resisted. <laughs> yes. um, and you can find all of that at songbysongpodcast.com. So listen to our other work and also rejoin us in the middle of the month for a retro Answer Me This with uh, me and Ollie reflecting upon our past selves and the shit we spouted into Mike some years ago. Otherwise, we will see you on the first Thursday of August. Bye! Bye. Heaven and Holy